Chapter Two of Sergeant York and His People by Sam Cowan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Brett Downey. A long hunter comes to the valley. The valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf is more than a fertile space between two mountain ranges. It is a rectangular basin of verdure and beauty in the glow of a southern sun, around which seven mountains have grown to their maturity. Generously, for uncounted years, this family of the hills has given to the valley the surplus products of their timbered slopes, and the Wolf River has gone through the valleys distributing the wealth the mountains brought in, brightening and adding touches of beauty here and there, ever singing as she came down to her daily task. The mountains and the river have worked unceasingly together to make the spot a place of comfort and beauty. On the bare rock shoulder of one of these mountains, in the closing years of the eighteenth century, stood one of the last of the Long Hunters, that race of stout-hearted, sturdy-legged men who, when the Atlantic coast was dotted with sparsely settled British colonies, climbed the mountains and went down the western slopes on the long hunts in the unknown land that lay below. They were the pioneers of the pioneers, who, in their wanderings, found a spot rich in game, in nuts and soil, such a home as they had wished, and they beckoned back for their families and their friends. The figure upon the rock ledge rested upon a long, muzzle-loading, flintlock rifle as he looked out over the valley. His legs were wrapped in crudely tanned hides made from the game he had killed. His cap was of coonskin. His search for adventure and game had carried him across the crest of the Cumberlands, and along many weary, lonely miles of the western wooded slopes of those mountains. Years afterward, he is known to have said that the view from the crag that day was the most appealing in its calmness and its beauty that he had seen upon his hunts. Below him stretched a grove of trees. Their waving tops told of their size, and to his trained woodsman's eye the quivering oval leaves were the leaves of the walnut. It was assurance that the soil was rich and through the length of the valley, twisted irregularly, lay a wide ribbon of saffron cane, from which, at times, the silver surface of a stream showed, a further evidence of the soil's fertility. Over the western edge of this tableland of green and yellow and silver, the mountains cast a shadow of purple, and the sun filtered slanting rays through the forest slopes on the north and east. Down the mountainside he came, and into the valley, never to leave it, except when in bartering with the Indians he went to their camping-places for furs, or in the years of prosperity that followed he was upon a trading mission. He first made his way through Walnut Grove, in search of the caned banks of the river. As he pushed through the reeds that swayed above him, he came suddenly upon a well-beaten path. In its dust were the prints of deer-hoofs, and he followed them. The path threaded the length of the valley beside the river's winding course, but he knew from the crests of the mountains above him the direction he was taking. It led him to the base of one of these mountains, to a spring which flowed clear and cool, a brook in size, from a low, rock-ribbed cave. By the spring he cooked his meal. His bread was baked upon a hot stone, and he drank water from a terrapin shell. As he ate his meal, there came the sound of breaking cane, a familiar welcome vibration to the hunter. A stone, that is still by the springside, was used as a shelter and a resting place for the rifle, and a deer fell as it stopped, astonished at the curling smoke that rose from its watering place. This was the first meal of the white man at the York Spring, or in the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, 
and for more than fifty years the hunter lived within a hundred yards of where he camped that day. He was Conrad Pyle, or Old Coonrod, as he is known, the descriptive adjectives and by-name ever coupled as though one word. He was the great-great-grandfather of Sergeant Alvin Cullum York, and the earliest ancestor of which he has account. Above the spring in the rock facing of the cliff is a large cave. Here Coonrod Pyle spread a bed of leaves and made his home. The campfire was kept burning, and its smoke was seen by other hunters, and Person Miller, Arthur Frog, John Riley, and Moses Poor came to Coonrod in the valley, and they too made their homes there. And Pall Mall was founded, and the descendants of these men are today eighty percent of the residents in the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf. This is but one of the many valley settlements made by Long Hunters in the Appalachian Mountains. Adventurous families in the last days of the colonies, and in the years that came after the Revolution, followed the hunters, and log cabins and cleared spaces appeared in the valleys and on the mountain sides. And from them sprang another race of Long Hunters, who went out from the mountains, down into the valleys of the Ohio and the Mississippi, returning to tell of the land and the game they had found. Not far from Pall Mall, as the crow would rise and journey, is a carving upon a tree that is believed to historically mark the path of the most noted of long hunters, and it says, D. Boone killed a bar on tree in the year 1760. Immigrants of those days settled as Coonrod Pyle and his companions took up their squatter's rights in the Valley of the Wolf. As canvas-covered mountain schooners carrying families of the settlers moved westward, they followed the trails of the hunters and stopped where it appealed to them. Wagon tracks grew into roads as the travel increased, and the roads unvaryingly led to the passes and the gaps in the mountains that offered the least resistance to progress. So, scattered throughout the ranges of the Appalachians, are many homes and settlements off from the old beaten wagon trails, far distant from the railroads of today, reached only over rocky, rarely worked roadways. Those who dwell there are the direct descendants of pioneers, here they had lived for generations unmolested by the rush and hurry for homes to the more fertile west. Often in those days a mountain neighbor was forty miles away, and they were long, rugged miles. Today a traveler distant on the mountainside can be recognized by the mountaineers, while the man's features are still untraceable, by the droop of a hat or a peculiar walk, or amble of the mule he rides. In the case of any traveler along those remote roads, the odds are long that the man— his father, his grandfather, as far back as anyone can remember, all were born and raised in the neighborhood, and the neighborhood is the valleys and the cleared spaces on the sides of all the mountains near around. So the mountaineer of today is the transplanted colonist of the eighteenth century. He is the backwoodsman of the days of Andrew Jackson. His life has the hospitality, the genuineness, and simplicity of the pioneer. It has been said of the residents of the Cumberland Mountains, that they are the purest Anglo-Saxons to be found today, and not even England can produce so clear a strain. The mountain families have intermarried, and because of the inaccessibility of their homes, have remained marooned in their mountain fastnesses. They are Anglo-Saxon in their blood and their customs. They are colonial Americans in their speech and credences. They have a love for daring that comes from the wilderness and freedom of their surroundings. They have a directness of mind that is the result of unconscious training. They must be sure of the firmness of each footstep they take, and it is through and past obstructions that they locate their game. They are keen of observation, for the movement of a shadow or the swaying of a weed 
may mean the presence of a fox, or a dropping hickory nut indicate the flight of a squirrel. They are physically brave, for it is the inheritance of all who live in the mountains. Their word is accepted, for they wish the good will of the few among whom they must spend their lives, and to them lying is a form of cowardice. They are sensitive, because they are observant, and realize they have been criticized and misunderstood, misclassed as a rare race of moonshiners and feudists. Quickly and clearly they see through any veneer of democracy the stranger may assume, to conceal an assumption of superiority. Yet, for the stranger on the roadside, in answer to the halloo at their gate, the mountaineers are willing to go out of their way to do a favor, and they will cheerfully share such food and comforts as they may have with any man. But they give their confidence only in proportion to demonstrations of manhood and genuineness, and as humanists they are not in a hurry. If there is an aura of caste, the distinctions must be created by those who have come as strangers into the mountains and not by the mountaineer. They know they are not ignorant, except as everyone is ignorant who lacks contact with new customs and changes in world progress. They are fully cognizant of their lack of that knowledge which comes only out of a book. But whatever their educational shortcomings, no one has ever laid at their door the charge of stupidity. Raised in nature's school, they are masters of its non-elective course. They know, by the arc the baying hounds make, the size of the circle the fox will take and where to intercept him. They can tell by the distance up the mountain side where the dogs are running whether the fox is red or gray. They know by the sound a rock makes as it is dropped into a stream the depth of the ford. They have even a classical finish to their woodland schooling, and they find a pleasure in noting that the bullfrog sits with his back to the water as the moon rises and faces it as the moon sets. They know the signs of changing weather that will affect their crops. The tints of the clouds that float above them convey a meaning. There are cause and effect in the wind that continues in one direction. They watch the actions of wild animals and fowls, and they are wise enough to attribute to beast and bird an intuitive protective sense superior to their own. They note when the moss has grown heavier on the north side of the tree. The steadiness of their poise and their silence in the presence of strangers is not due to moroseness or the absence of active thought. They have learned in the woods, if they are to be successful in their hunts, to be personally as unobtrusive as possible, often to remain motionless, and all the while to watch and listen alertly. Whenever they can be of real assistance, no one can more quickly or more generously respond. They have their own standard of values in personal intercourse, and they can wait patiently and in impressive silence. They are always willing for someone else to hold the spotlight on their rural stage. About themselves they are naturally taciturn, and public and unfriendly criticism has been proved to be a hazardous diversion. If the thought and comment of the stranger upon the mountaineer could be compared with the keen and often humorous analysis of the stranger, the score would be found in surprising frequency on the side of the calm and silent mountaineer. They give but little heed to the clothes a man wears, but look clear-eyed at the man within the clothes. They have no criticism for the way a man says his say, so he has something to say. A noted college professor, himself a mountain boy, maintains, I would rather hear a boy say, I seed, when he had really seen something, than to hear a boy say, I saw, when he had not seen it. Old Coonrod Pyle lived in the valley until his life spanned from the days when it was a hunting ground of the Indians to the time when he can be remembered by some of the men and women now living in Pall Mall, who knew him as the most influential man of his time in the section the owner of the river-bottom farmland, vast acres of hardwood timber, 
a general store and a flour mill worked by his slaves a man grown to such enormous size and weight that in his last days he went about his farm and to oversee his workers in a two-wheeled cart pulled by oxen those of the valley who now remember him were children when he died for he was born on march sixteenth seventeen sixty six and his death occurred on october fourteenth eighteen forty nine he saw his valley home change from a part of the state of franklin to a part of the state of kentucky then to tennessee and the abstracts to the deeds for land he owned show that pall mall was first in granger county later in overton and finally in fentress county as the state of tennessee developed pall mall is but seven miles from the kentucky line and for many years coonrod thought he had taken up his residence within the kentucky border settlers of those days in leaving the carolinas and virginia traveled usually due west in search for a new home it was this belief that he had settled in kentucky that has led many to the opinion that coonrod's former home was in virginia others without more definite knowledge for foundation maintain that as he settled in tennessee he had lived in north carolina the written word was rarely used and the stories of the earlier days in the valley of the three forks of the wolf are tradition in a newly settled territory a man's birthplace and antecedents are facts immaterial to the community's welfare and many incidents historical in nature concerning old coonrod have been lost in the waste basket of forgetfulness and no one now at pall mall has heard tale of just where he come from yet some readily say that he came from over yonder and they point back across the mountains toward north carolina in the first map of tennessee made by daniel smith there is a dip in the northern boundary of the state line where fentress county is located but this was found to be an error of survey and later corrected the surveyors of those days were men of courtesy and accommodation for in the establishment of the tennessee virginia line they surveyed around the southern boundary of the farm of a hospitable host and left his lands in virginia because the old fellow maintained he had never had any health except in the mountains of virginia that coonrod was of english descent there seemed scarcely room for doubt and pile or pile with a y and pall mall stand as mute testimony and york too is a component part of old england i was never able to learn why the village was given its unique name and there is no tradition that associates it with the noted street in london though even to-day pall mall in fentress county is but a single road i asked a white-haired mountaineer how long the place had been known as pall mall with a memory reviving shake of his head that ended in a convinced nod his answer was quite a wit and that is the nearest i ever came to accuracy but seeing his reply did not contain the information wanted he looked at me thoughtfully and said it's just like old crow every morning for eighty-two years i had looked up at the rocks of that mountain and the hain't changed a bit the government records show that pall mall was made a post office on april third eighteen thirty two old coonrod was a man of big business for his time one of force of character who dominated his community and who sized his man by standards that were peculiarly his own a man would come to him to buy a poke of corn or flour or for a favor to the surprise of the stranger the favor might be over granted or the corn given without cost or upon the other hand he would be brusquely dismissed without the least effort at explanation unknown to the stranger the condition of his breeches had probably given him his credit rating with old coonrod for he held that patches upon the front of trousers if the seat were whole 
were decorations of honor, showing that the man had torn them doing something, going forward. But if the front of the trousers were good, and the seat of them patched, no dealings of any nature were to be had with the dictator of the valley, for to old Coonrod it meant the man was like a rabbit, he could not stop without sitting down. But the residents of the valley, many of them Methodists, claim this estimate works a hardship upon members of their faith, for a good Methodist could wear the knees out at prayer and the seat out in backsliding. Old Coonrod's trading with the Indians was a series of successes. He is known to have had their confidence and friendship, and he was an arbitrator between them and his neighbors whenever disputes arose. Fentress County, lying on the western slope of the Cumberlands, was part of the great hunting grounds of the Shawnees, Cherokees, Creeks, Chickamaugas, Chickasaws, and even the Iroquois of New York. The basin of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, that part now Tennessee and Kentucky, was claimed by each of these tribes as its own, not as home, but as hunting ground, and when bands of hunters of rival tribes met in the territory, each fought the other as an invader, and their battles gave to Kentucky its Indian name, meaning, in the Indian tongue, the dark and bloody ground. But old Coonrod kept peace with all of them, and prospered from their friendship, and an Indian trail turned and led close to where he lived. The last of the Indians passed through the valley in 1842. As old Coonrod prospered, he bought land and slaves, and was a large owner of both in his day. He was a cautious and judicious purchaser of realty. The court records show that at some time or other he was the owner of the most desirable parts of Fentress County. He held title to the land upon which Jamestown, the county seat, now stands, which is the Obedstown of Mark Twain's Gilded Age. He owned Rock Castle, a tract of hardwood timber that is enclosed by mountains and can be reached by but one passageway, a place that became famous during the Civil War. He bought and sold much of the county's best farming land along Yellow Creek. Fentress was made a county of Tennessee in 1823, and the first four pages of the new county's records of deeds show that within 18 months Conrad Pyle had added, through a number of trades, over 600 acres to his already large holdings. So cautious in land titles was he, that at the time of his death he owned three rights to his home place, including the farming land along Wolf River. The first was his squatter's rights, which he had homesteaded. But against this, North Carolina, in ceding the territory of Tennessee to the United States government, reserved title to the land grants the state had offered to her soldiers of the Revolutionary War, and one Henry Rowan of North Carolina entered warrants given him on March 10, 1780. The Revolutionary soldiers had twenty years to locate their grants, and in 1797 Rowan appeared with surveyors, claiming by his entry of 1780 the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf. He operated under two land warrants of 320 acres each, and in his registry, one of them he specified, a track on the north side of Spring Creek, now Wolf River, together with the improvements of Coonrod Pile. Old Coonrod traded with him, and Rowan took up his residence in what is now Overton County. As late as 1817, there appeared one Vincent Benham, with title under a conflicting grant dated in 1793. Old Coonrod traded with him, and with ten dollar in hand, Benham went his way. But the deeds which Coonrod recorded were voluminous, with corners as explicitly marked as any land title of today. Up on one of the mountainsides, upon a rock, there is a crudely carved X, 
which was made by Coonrod to mark a corner which called for a beech tree that has disappeared, and this mark and the forks of the Wolf River, corners in Coonrod's titles, stand today as survey points for the boundaries of the farms now in the valley. Coonrod built his home beside the spring, now known as York Spring. Its yard includes the spot where he made his first camp and where he killed his first deer. Characteristic of him, he built well. The house was hewn logs, large logs, some of them over fifty feet in length. And the dwelling is now owned and occupied by one of his great-grandchildren, William Brooks, the only brother of the mother of Sergeant York. The house is today one of the most substantial in the valley. Just across the spring branch and up the mountainside is the York home. Old Coonrod built one of the rooms without windows and with only one door. That door led into his own room and opened by his bedside. In this windowless room he kept his valuables, and it was both a safe and a bank for him. Into a keg, covered carelessly with hides, he tossed any gold coin that came to him in his trades. His rifle was kept there. He had the prongs of a pitchfork straightened and sharpened. The latter was his burglar insurance, and he felt amply able to take care of his savings. And in those days men frequently passed through the valley whose occupations were unknown, and whose countenances were often evil to look upon. Pall Mall is not without its legend of the hidden keg of gold. It is known that old Coonrod had his keg and kept in it his gold pieces. It is not known just when and why this method of saving was abandoned by him. But after his death no trace of the keg was found, and it is said that upon his deathbed he tried to give his sons a message which was never completed, and it is believed he wished to reveal where his gold was hidden. There are some who say he was seen to go up a ravine with a mysterious bundle and to return without it. The ravine is pointed out. It opens on the roadway about halfway between the rain store and the old home of Coonrod. But there is no myth to the present-day side of the story. More than squirrels and rabbits have been hunted up that ravine. But the legend of the hidden keg of gold is popular in many of the valleys of the Appalachians, and it will even be found to have leaped the valley of the Mississippi and almost identical in form appear and appeal to the impressionable imaginations of those who live in the Ozark Mountains to the west of that river. There was but one thing in which old Coonrod stood really in fear, something not made or controlled by man. It was lightning. Whenever a heavy thunderstorm broke over the mountains, Coonrod, even in the last years of his life, when he had grown so fat, ran with all the speed he could command for the cave above the spring. Here he would stay, muttering, and unapproachable until the storm abated. Then he would come from the cave, swearing in that deep voice that carried both power and terror, and, as the story goes, for hours niggers would be hopping all over the valley. Coonrod had a genuine admiration for the man or beast willing to fight for his rights. Once, finding one of his jacks eating his growing corn, he put his dog upon him. The jack was old and small and shaggy. He turned upon the dog sent after him, and seizing the aggressor by the hair at his back, lifted him from the ground, and maintaining his dignity, trotted out of the cornfield, carrying the squirming dog. That jack was pensioned. He was given his full supply of corn in winter, and granted the freedom of the meadows and the mountainsides in summer. Old Coonrod would never sell him. John M. Clemens, Mark Twain's father, lived in Jamestown, when his dwelling constituted one-fifteenth of Obed's town. He and Coonrod Pyle were close friends, Pyle helping elect Clemens to be the first circuit court clerk of Fentress County. Both were firm believers in the future value of the timber, coal, 
iron, and copper to be found in the mountains. In the thirties, both acquired all the acreage their resources would permit. Mark Twain makes Squire Cy Hawkins of the Gilded Age, conceded to be drawn from the life of his father, struggled to keep the value or the land unknown to the natives. Squire Hawkins confides to his wife that the black stuff that crops out of the bank of the branch was coal, and tells of his effort to keep a neighbor from building a chimney out of it. Why, it might have caught fire and told everything. I showed him it was too crumbly. Then he was going to build it of copper ore, splendid yellow forty percent ore. There's fortunes upon fortunes upon our land. It scared me to death. The idea of this fool starting a smelting furnace in his house without knowing it, and getting his dull eyes opened. And then when he was going to build it out of iron ore. There's mountains of iron here. Nancy, whole mountains of it. I wouldn't take any chance. I just stuck by him. I haunted him. I never let him alone until he built it of mud and sticks, like all the rest of the chimneys in this dismal country. Again, Squire Hawkins's appreciation of the speculative value of his lands is shown in a talk with his wife. The whole tract would not sell for even a third of a cent an acre now, but some day people will be glad to get it for twenty dollars, fifty dollars, a hundred dollars an acre. Here he dropped his voice to a whisper and looked anxiously around to see there were no eavesdroppers. A thousand dollars an acre. Today, many of the acres owned by Coonrod Pyle and John M. Clemens have passed the hundred-dollar mark and are climbing towards that whispered and seemingly fabulous figure, and this, too, before the coming of the railroad for which Squire Hawkins could not wait. Twain delighted to have Squire Hawkins sit upon the pyramid of large blocks called the Stile in front of his home, contemplating the morning. But John M. Clemens had his practical side, and the specifications for the first jail for Fentress County drawn by Clemens, and in his own handwriting, made part of the county's records in 1827, show a very substantial strain. To wit, for a jail, a house of logs, hewed a foot square, twelve feet in the clear, two stories high, and this surrounded by another wall precisely of the same description, with a space between the two walls of about eight or ten inches, and that space filled completely with skinned hickory poles, ground floor to be formed of sills, hewed about a foot square and laid closely the logs to extend through the inner wall of the building etc and that jail was standing serviceable and strong until a few years ago when the prosperity of fentress county called for an edifice of red stone clemens and pyle remained friends and competitive landowners until with an activity and a suddenness that bewildered obedstown and almost took away its breath the hawkinses hurried through their arrangements in four short months and flitted out into the great mysterious blank that lay beyond the knobs of Tennessee, to Missouri, where a few months afterward Mark Twain was born. Another friend of Coonrod Pyle was David Crockett. The hero of the Alamo had many hunts in Fentress County, upon the knobs, and along the upper waters of the Cumberland. The old Crockett home still stands a few miles to the north of Jamestown, beside the road that leads to Pall Mall was in a house upon land owned by Coonrod Pyle that deaf and dumb Jimmy Crockett spent the last years of his life, and from which he made so many journeys to locate the silver mine of the Indians who had held him captive, and who had pinioned him to the ground while they dug their ore, never allowing him to see where they worked, but using him to help carry the mined product. David Crockett, in his autobiography, tells the story of deaf and dumb Jimmy, but he places the scene in Kentucky, making probably the same mistake in the location of the state-line boundary which Coonrod Pyle had made. 
Coonrod Pyle lived to the age of 83, and at the time of his death was the most powerful personality in Fentress County. His business interests had grown to such proportions that he had economic problems to solve, and the simple, practical methods he used are followed in the valley today. He dug only so much coal as he could use, the transportation problem preventing its sale. He could only market the poplar, the cedar, and such woods as he could float on the rises of the wolf to the Cumberland River to be rafted. He raised cotton, but only the amount the women needed for their looms. He grew wheat and corn, but no more than was necessary for flour and meal for the neighborhood and to feed the stock he owned, laying aside a portion for use in time of need for the improvident and unfortunate. He was ready at any time to trade with anybody for almost anything. In the last score of the years of his life, the most successful financially, he found that the money he could accumulate came only from the sale of products that could move from the valley across the mountains by their own motive power, something that could go on foot. So he turned to stock-raising, and with his own slaves cut the present roadway from Pall Mall to Jamestown, there to join with the old Kentucky stock road, which ran from Atlanta and Chattanooga, along the Cumberland Plateau by Jamestown, on to the north, through Frankfurt and Cincinnati. Old Coonrod was not a one-price man on the realty he owned. If the purchase was for speculation, he was a trader, with his sights set high. If the buyer wanted a home, he was generous. It meant the upbuilding of his community. So the people of that day lived in comradeship. There were few luxuries and no real want. If there was a farming patch to be cleared, the neighbors came from miles around, and there was a log-rolling. If it was a home or crib to be built, it was a log-raising, and everyone worked and made fun from it. The steeple of the church arose in the valley. It was built by those of the Methodist faith. But before that, and even afterward, they held camp meetings and basket meetings, where a community lunch was served under the trees and where the service lasted through the daylight hours, allowing for a mountain journey home. And the religious fervor was so sincere and intense at these meetings that they were called melting sessions. Up the mountainside above the York Spring, a space was cleared for shooting matches, where the prizes were beeves and turkeys, and where the men shot so accurately that the slender crossings of two knife-blade marks was the bull's-eye of the target, and everyone went on hunts, long hunts when crops were laid by or winter had checked farm work, and, as human nature is the same the world over, there were many an upright resident of the Valley of the Three Forks of the Wolf, who left the plough standing in the furrow because the yelp and baying of the hounds grew warm upon the mountainside. The families of mountain men are usually large in number, and the estate of Coonrod Pyle has passed through a long division. He had eight children, and his son Elijah Pyle, the branch of the family to which Sergeant York belongs, had eleven children. That portion of the estate which Elijah inherited passed into good hands. He conserved his part, handled well the talents left with him. But the second division, by eleven, together with the ravages of the Civil War and the years that followed, left only seventy-five acres, and far from the best of it, to Mary York, the truly wonderful little mountain mother who gave to Alvin York those qualities of mind and heart which stood him in good stead in the forest of Argonne, who taught him to so live that he feared no man, and to do thoroughly and always in the right way that which he had to do. Else, as she so frequently said to him, you'll have to do it over, or it'll cause you trouble. End of chapter Recording by Brett Downey